Welcome to Trendsetters, the latest season of the podcast Long Story Short. I'm Peter Van Doywert, and this series is all about demystifying the world of quantitative trend-following strategies, how they work, why they work, and where they might fit in your portfolio. Welcome back to the podcast. For our final episode of 2022, I'm delighted to be talking to Luke Ellis, CEO here at Man Group. Luke, thank you for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. So we have a lot of things to talk about, but I thought I'd start with the central banks. You've been pretty vocal, especially early this year, about policymakers not having the will to fight inflation properly. Powell's gone after it with a slew of 75 bit hikes. The ECB, maybe not so much. What do you think now? Uh, I'm not sure I've changed my opinion very much. So what I said at the time was that in order to actually get rid of inflation, once inflation's into wages, and we definitely have wage inflation going on everywhere, you could debate your number, but it's somewhere between, you know, the latest Fed numbers, five point something for the US, the ADP, which I prefer as a wage inflation number, but it doesn't really matter, is seven point something. So we're five to seven, that's not compatible with 2% inflation. So the only that if the Fed wants to get inflation down to their official target, they have got to change the employment picture. And what they've done is to raise rates a reasonable amount. Um, interestingly, financial conditions haven't been tightening for the last six months. So sort of they aren't achieving much on financial conditions. But really importantly, the employment market remains very strong. Now, I'm not saying it's a good thing to cause mass unemployment, but if you want to get inflation down to 2%, they have got to cause a significant amount of unemployment. What it seems to me that Powell indicated in the last couple of weeks quite clearly, which was sort of what I was talking about earlier in the year, and it still feels the same, is that as you start to see the first derivative of inflation turn negative, which we have I think now definitively seen, that what would happen was that they would back off on further rate hikes in the hope of having some wonderful Goldilocks outcome where you know they, they get inflation down to target without having a recession. I think there is a essentially zero chance of that scenario. And so what you're seeing is the Fed talking about backing off on rate rises and the market is pricing in rate cuts next year from the Fed. And, you know, if they stick where they are, if they raise another 50, a couple of 50s, you know, they're not going to have done enough to get rid of inflation. So we'll see headline inflation come down to pick a number three or four and then go up again. And we're never going to see 2% unless they're willing to take real pain. And my sense then, and I don't think I've changed, is they're not willing to take real pain. Yeah, I think we've seen it from some of the other governors already trying to back off. I don't know that Powell per se has backed off, but he's they're clearly not doing 75s. So you just could hike infinitely. I mean, do you subscribe to something like the Taylor Rule, which implies a rate closer to 8 or 9%? Or is that just kind I, of... I mean, it, it's a sort of... It's a nice theoretical model. We're not getting there, so it's a slightly pointless thing. I, I don't know what the number is one would need to get to, but the bit about it is the Fed has got to be raising rates 
into the beginning of pain, not raising rates until the first sign that maybe things aren't perfect, at which point they're, 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 so they're, they're so far talking a game about not cutting rates. The market doesn't believe that story. If they, if, if they mean what they say, they've got a lot of work to do to convince the market of it. And if they actually want to, if they really want to target 2%, Look, they, they used to, the Fed rule used to be 2% inflation was consistent with 6% unemployment. 6% unemployment is a long way from now. As of last week, we're still getting significant job growth. You know, the, the, that's all inconsistent with the Fed talking about backing off rate rises. So are people over trying to predict the pivot? Because everyone, we're living data point to data point because Powell basically told us he's data dependent. And the market keeps trying to game the pivot. I mean, does it sound like one's not coming if we're just looking at the wage inflation data? Uh, so, so I think we're going to see the Fed. I think you can see not that far out the point where they stop raising rates. Uh, I personally am dubious they're going to cut rates. But I don't think they will have raised rates enough to get inflation down to 2%. So, you know, to me, this uh, more turbulent economic environment, thereby leading to more turbulent market environment, is probably with us for years, not months, because the choices are difficult. And when choices are difficult, what you get is politicians and most central bankers in the end are politicians will put off difficult decisions for as long as they can. So every strategist seems obligated to do some kind of year-end piece or a road-ahead piece. And if you really just average them out, they generally are up markets. They're generally wrong. They're generally random. There's a lot of pages, though. No, there's, there's definitely a lot of work. People are definitely getting paid a lot <laughs> to do a lot of writing. But it and some of the contortions are crazy. Even there, I'm not sure the the price per page they get paid would be that good when you look at the number of pages they produce in these things. Fair enough. But some of the reason they have to write so many pages is because of the contortions, right? There's one who came out and said he expects the S&P to fall to 3,000 before rallying at the end of year 5,000. And so, you know, to some degree, I've given up uh, on that. But, of course, I was also asked to write something for next year, which tells you the enthusiasm I have for the topic. Um, but so for the heck of it, I just said, why don't we just stop thinking and think the worst things that happened this year might happen again next year for a variety of reasons. And, and so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on some of them. You know, that would imply equities down 25%, you know, at the lows this year. So it puts the S&P somewhere around 3,000 next year. Does it sound okay? Look, I, I think the big picture in this is there's a lot of economic uncertainty and, and like ever trying to predict where an equity market will be a year from now is somewhere between incredibly difficult and impossibly hard. A year is a long time away in most markets. And in the economic volatility that I think we're going to see, it's impossibly difficult. I, I sort of, you know, do I think that the range of 3,000 to 5,000 on the S&P is a good range? Yes. It's a pretty damn wide range, right? And trying to think you can say exactly the path of it, I think is very difficult. The, the, yeah, what, what's the 3,000 
sort of number around some, you know, I don't think we've seen the lows of, you know, I don't think we've seen the lows of this cycle in the S&P. I don't think we've seen the highs in the S&P. That's forever. So sort of 3,000, 5,000, hey, that, that will knock us out. You know, what's, what's 3,000 around is that if we, if the Fed tightens enough to try to get rid of inflation, that means they're going to cause a significant recession. A significant recession means that, you know, 200 of earnings, 180 of earnings looks like a sensible number and you put a multiple on it and that gets you looking at 3,000 type of thing. Um, You know, or maybe the Fed is going to actually do what the pivot suggests and chicken out and start cutting rates and then free money, we can get another big rush up, a sugar rush to some high number before they then have to deal with the pain. And so the 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 range makes sense between the where do we get with sugar rush, where do we get if the Fed takes the pain. And so then you're trying to think about a path and that path is, well, the Fed says they're data dependent. I suspect at some level they are. I think trying to predict the path is a mug's game. So don't don't read the strategist reports. <laughs> uh, look, they're interesting reading. I, I, the reason I know how many pages there are is because I keep hitting Alt-P or whatever it is to print them out and going, oh, damn, I thought there was 10 pages and I've got 120 and I tend to read the 10 summary pages. They're interesting reading. There is a weird amount of consensus on this idea of yeah, we're going to rally for a while, then we're going to sell off, then we're going to rally into the end of next year. That feels... Very, very specific. Yes, exactly. <laughs> very specific about a path. You know, it's, it's while history never repeats, it does rhyme. It's interesting looking at what happened the last time we had significant inflation, which is the 70s. It's not going to be exactly the same. There's an interesting thing as to whether you think we're in the mid-70s now or whether you think we're in 1981 or maybe you think we're in 69. You know, they give you a different view. But but one of the bits of the 70s is we saw, you know, so we saw a big sell-off at the beginning. We then saw over a 10-year period no real return to equities and negative rates on government bonds. But interestingly, a, a number of 40%, 50% rallies. So, you know, the path dependency is much harder to do in an inflationary world than it is in a, in a sort of simple non-inflationary world. And I think that's why we all contort ourselves trying to guess the pivot, because you can't miss the 40% rally. If you miss it, you, you look bad for one reason or another, and you might get proven right in 15 years. But, you know, I, I, in the same way the Fed says it wants to let the data tell them what's going on, we like to let the data tell us what it's going on. And, uh, you know, this is where trend is a really sensible way of thinking about life. And it's, you know, the, the, when, you see, when you see the direction of markets change, you should change your opinion about what's going to happen next, not the other way around. Well, I guess that favors active management, but maybe asking you that question is sort of an obvious result. Yeah, I've I've had a, a slightly odd time the last month. I've done a lot of traveling around the world, talking to 
to senior people at clients. And, you know, I, I have my fundamental view about the fact that with heightened inflation, that creates economic volatility, that creates market volatility, that creates significant opportunity for active management and within that trend. And I always say, but you could say I'm talking my book because, yeah, that would suit us. But the fact that it suits us doesn't mean it isn't what I think. I was quite happy in the sort of the late teens period when you know it was clear that the great moderation meant that you know there was less of a return to active management to put my hand up and say, yeah, and while the world sits with you know zero rates and zero inflation and everything every central bank doing the same thing, it's not a great environment for active management it's an environment to have the most concentrated levered portfolio you can have which you know maybe that is the kathy wood story that's the most levered most concentrated portfolio possible and it and it really worked in that environment and i would put my hand up and say yeah until the environment changes it was a tough time for active management it just economics says to me that the next and as I say, I think it's years, not months, will be a different market environment. And in the, if you believe in that one where inflation doesn't go back down to zero, one percent, and you know that then then active management should have a very good run. And not only that, if inflation at zero percent strikes me as global depression as opposed to normalization yeah. of any. Yeah, exactly. The, the, yeah, if we get if we get rates back down to zero, it's because there's been a really bad market i mean really bad economy and that will be really bad for equities when it happens so be careful what you wish for i, I do think there's one thing about good for us uh, for active management one has to be there's a caveat to all of this right the the more that there is dispersion in markets the more opportunity there is to generate alpha but it requires skill to generate alpha and so, you know, one of the things is when there's lots of dispersion, you can get it right and make very good returns. You can get it wrong and bleed money quite quickly. And so it's not that I think that lots of dispersion is good for all active management. I think it's good for people who have skill. I'm very happy to take the bet on man's skill. And so I think it's very good for us. But, you know, I could see it being very bad for a whole bunch of people because they don't have skill and they will be more active and they'll lose money. Which brings to mind long short managers, many of whom struggled this year, to put it generously, because they were apparently closet beta as opposed to alpha. I mean, is that a dead universe long short? Equity long shorts? No, I think I think one has to separate that universe into two groups that there is a significant group maybe it's the still the biggest part of the hedge fund industry by AUM who run knowingly and the clients who buy them know that they're running with a very significant net long all the time 60 to 80 percent net long sometimes more and concentrated bets and that's the classic style bought by endowments in the US. Uh, but mostly they buy them as a replacement for equity. 
And so they want them to keep up with equity markets in the good times and know that they're going to have significant drawdowns in the bad times. Now, there have been some that have had things that look quite close to blow up territory, but but fundamentally they are delivering what their clients wanted from them. Then you have another section, you, know, you could think of it as the more market-neutral people, where they're being bought by clients as an absolute return manager, a portfolio diversifier, maybe portable alpha. And those managers have done okay this year. No, you know, on average, no great shakes, but not on average a problem either. And so they are not a problem for clients in their portfolio. And in a looking forward world, I think those continue to be for, if you like, pension fund investors globally, absolute return investors globally, they still look like a pretty good investment. They're just not an equity replacement. They were never trying to keep up with equities in the good times, and they show none of the drawdown characteristics of equities this year. All right, so I have a list. I'm going to go back to the list in order. So I'm going to stick with a couple of macro topics before we talk about hedge funds again, understanding that you're CEO of a hedge fund. Um, just a few more of my extensions of this year to next year. And one of them, you're going to say, no way. So you might ask why I'm asking. Um, the two-year note at eight and a quarter percent? I find that one is firmly in the no way camp. I think one of the interesting things at the moment is if you are buying equities because of the pivot, then you might as well buy two-year notes. Because if the Fed really pivots, two-year notes... I mean, you can buy a lot of them and you'll get a lot of price appreciation out of them. So, but if I extend that, and your argument is if they pivot, they may have pivoted too early. So two years out, two-year notes at 8%. I, do I think that we can see two-year notes, the, the high yield on two-year notes in this cycle of inflation at 8, 8.5%? Yeah, I think that's perfectly possible. I mean, genuinely, perfectly possible. There, There is a sort of weird thing of, I mean, some of this is age, and I'm sort of showing my age, right? My first mortgage had a 17, 17% coupon. And in my career, 5% yields were the median, essentially. And so, you know, sort of, I don't think of 5% as high rates. I think of that as just ordinary, normal, and so, you know, it's perfectly possible we get back to a place where in order to actually create contraction to get rid of inflation, that the Fed needs to go to 8%. I, I don't think it's going to happen in 2023 and maybe not in 2024, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Yeah, to me, it's, it's not a fat tail anymore. That's probably how I describe it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's sort of that bit that people forgot that zero one percent rates are really abnormal, but those are very abnormal, and you know, sort of five percent is fairly normal, and so therefore eight is just the other side of the distribution to two. Which, speaking of suppression and abnormal rate environments. The UK pension crisis was somewhat predicated on a lot of buying of gilts by pensions as part of liability hedge programs. Part of my little extension is sterling sub one. Do you say 0.9? Because have we ever seen that kind of a number? 
I think 0.9 we say. So one, is the UK pension crisis over? And two, what's the landscape for, because man's a UK company after all, barely. <laughs> uh, what's the landscape look for finance, everything UK, Brexit? So, so look, man is a global company with our headquarters in the UK and our listing, if that matters, happens to be in the UK. Um, I, I think that people thinking about sterling at 0.9 and so on is one of those classic extrapolation things where they just got overexcited. Um, you know, UK PLC, to think of a big picture, looked very cheap at 110, 105. I'm not surprised it's come back from there. Um, you know, 160, which has been the middle of a sort of long-term channel, looks expensive given the damage that Brexit has done to the UK economy. Um, you know, whether Brexit has done what it was supposed to do, we can debate that, you know, sort of whether people got what they were promised. Again, you could debate. It, it, you know, it depends whether you think people voted for Brexit in the knowledge it would have an economic cost or whether they thought it was a freebie. If they thought it was a freebie, they've got suckered. If you believe that they actually didn't believe the bus and that they knew they were voting for something that had a cost to it, but that was worth it for the control, which I, I don't know. I mean, there's a good argument people did. Well, they've got the cost and they've got some of the control and, it was a majority voted for it, so I think you know, I'm a believer in accepting the results of elections, however annoying they are. And the and the pension crisis, guilts. So the pension crisis. So so the liquidity crisis in pensions in UK pensions is is behind us. I would say you can create a scenario where it comes again, but it's very hard to create. I think that. Sorry, actually, I should be careful. It's hard to create by yields going high rapidly again because they have to go a long way. And it and the biggest thing was the index link gilts that that the pension funds owned in the LDI programs, where they were owning 20, 25, 30 year index link gilts with a, a two and a half percent negative real rate per annum. You know, you buy something for 25 years with a 2.5% negative real rate, you you are promising to wipe out at least 50% of the value of your money. I mean, that is a really dumb thing to be buying. And they've repriced to, you know, whether it's good or bad value is a debate, but at least they've priced to something where it's a positive real yield, right? And so that is at least a reason you own it over time. Um, the the place where we can get back into a UK pension crisis is twofold. One, if we see those index link guilt yields going negative again, I'm not sure any lessons have been learned in the LDI crew about not buying them when they have negative real yields. Um, and so I could see that the crisis getting stoked up again that way. And then secondly, that I can see a problem in the UK defined benefit market, which is what this is about, 
where the conclusion of the consultants who sort of got them into this trouble in the first place is that what the pension should now do is to keep owning as many guilts as they had before because it reduces the accounting variability, which is a purely accounting effect, not a real effect, um, but sort of stick with being concerned about that more than real returns and to de-risk the rest of their pension, the, the portfolio, even more and to, you know, and, and if they don't run enough risk, then they're not going to generate reasonable returns, which means that that's going to create a different sort of pension crisis that the, the guarantors of the pensions are going to have to put their hand in the pocket for more than they should do if there was reasonable investment returns. So, you know, you, you, you sort of, yeah, the, 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 you won't likely get exactly the same one again because rates go higher, but you can, the, the right lessons haven't been learned sadly yet in the UK pension industry. Yeah, and I think what people discover, there's really a lot of ways to lose money, even if you're just hedging something, which is time and time again the thing. And so people always try to find a Lehman moment in these sort of crises, but Bear went under first. So is this UK guilt crisis, is that a Lehman moment, Bear moment? I'm more concerned about liquidity, the treasury market, that sort of thing. Yeah, look, I, I think the better way of thinking about that is so far in the unwinding of the excesses that two things have broken, right? A whole load of stuff in crypto has broken and no, let's not spend an hour talking about crypto, but you can see that a whole load of things in crypto have broken and the the sort of lending financing part of crypto is, I mean, that was horrible. It was a and, joke, it was a and, joke to begin with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that's broken and, and there's still more to unwind, but, you know, and the UK gilt market broke and, you know, the, the, do I think that we've seen the end of, have we seen all the things that need to break in order to unwind the excesses of the zero interest rate, negative interest rate, free money, excess leverage world? No, I think there are more things that have got to break, whether they will break in 2023 or longer depends how the different central bank behavior goes. So you just said you don't want to talk about crypto. FTX is probably not going to buy Goldman Sachs. I mean, is this an asset class? Is it just done and over with? And, and if, if it's not, is it, is it tradable in some way? So, so look, cryptocurrencies are definitely tradable. We trade them... Um, you know, do I think it's possible to come up with fundamental valuations for any of them? No, not at all, right? They are a purely speculative instrument. That's okay as long as you trade it in a purely speculative way. You can trade it in a trend way. You can trade it in a relative value way. You can trade it in a mean reverting way. They can all make sense as long as you don't try and trade it in a fundamental way, right? You know, you can sit there and you can look at the fundamentals of a company and understand the valuation of the company over time and you can do that based on fundamentals. You can't do that with a cryptocurrency. They are just speculative things. Um, that, that's sort of pure crypto. 
the as I mentioned earlier, the, the sort of speculative, the, the sort of lending world around there, the stablecoin world around there. I mean that that's got lots of problems that are going to go wrong. And, and a twenty percent rate should have told you this isn't safe. That's the, thing. that's the thing, right? I mean, you know, when 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 the return for lending money to the U.S. government was zero percent, and you could get eight percent for lending money to Sam Bankman-Fried, and then when the the U.S. was offering you two, and suddenly he's offering you twenty, I mean, that that's you know, when people are offering you those sorts of returns, that's because they can't give you your money back, right? That that is true. It's always been true. That's you know, it, it's nice to get a bit of extra return. When you get too much return, it means because they can't give you the money back. I think the the bit that one's supposed to say now is, of course, if you put cryptocurrencies to the side, you know, the, the blockchain technology is, of course, fantastic and going to change the world. And I love Cam dearly, and I know he did the podcast talking about how that's true. But I have to say... I've yet to find a convincing use case for blockchain technology where it actually makes a difference that is going to gain critical mass and remain for time. And so, you know, the, 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 the big example that's been used in presentations in finance for the last seven, eight years, I can't remember when they started, was the Australian Stock Exchange who had a big program to put all of sort of settlement and clearing on the Australian exchange into the blockchain world, and they've just written it all off. And I think 250 million, something, that's a big number for ASX. And they've written it off to zero because they just haven't been able to get to critical mass. And I... I worry that this may be one of those things which, you know, a bit like Esperanto, sorry, that's a language that they had in mind in Europe would be, you know, it was a, it was a great idea that never found a use case and has never happened. Well, I worked for George Soros, who was a huge believer in Esperanto, <laughs> but he never spoke to me in that language. No, uh, no, nor has anybody ever talked to anyone else in that language, really. So, so all of the crypto stuff brings me to venture capital and privates. You know, I love seeing the various SoftBank slides with flying unicorns that go up and they go down. And, and I used to use them in tail hedge presentations to say if there are flying unicorns, you're supposed to hedge right, as, as a thing. Um, but the UK pension price crisis also brings up the idea of illiquidity being a problem. Right, They couldn't sell their privates. So between due diligence what are eventually going to be big markdowns in a lot of the VC stuff and illiquidity? Is the game up for private markets? No, but one should... So, so liquidity is extremely important and understanding the liquidity that you actually have in a portfolio and the calls that may come on your liquidity is really, really important and... You know, clearly the LDI world or the UK defined benefit world misunderstood the calls there could be on liquidity. It's a bit sad because it wasn't a very... It wasn't complex. It wasn't very complex. It wasn't a very difficult one to imagine. There are more complex ones to imagine. I was chatting with a sovereign wealth fund the other day and we were talking about, you know, the liquidity calls they could get from FX hedging 
on their portfolio and from some levered bond positions and some of the things they do with us, which have leverage in and they run, you know, and, and we were talking about the scenarios they run and, and they were very sensibly conservative in the scenarios they run. And then I said, have you run the one where the government asks you for, it's a sovereign wealth fund, right? So it's sort of, I don't know whether you call that owned by a government or whatever. And have you run the scenario where the government asks you for 20% of your capital in cash? Because the reason that your portfolio is getting stressed is that something bad is happening in your country and therefore the government needs the money all of a sudden. And, and you know, made for a pretty interesting conversation about, you know, you can get calls on liquidity you should think of all the things you can think of and stress them to the maximum amount. And then you should always have a big buffer because other stuff happens that you've forgotten. So important that any saver is thinking really honestly about how much liquidity they need and has investments in things which can deliver that liquidity. Now, that's then secondly, you get to whatever amount you can take illiquidity risk. Uh, looking at private markets is a perfectly sensible idea. Uh, and there are times where it's exactly the right thing to be doing. But you ought to be getting a premium for your illiquidity, and you ought to be getting something you can't get just as easily in public markets for your illiquidity. You know, we, we, we used to talk about the illiquidity premium. You know, the reality is in many things, and when you look at some of the SoftBank things, it's a good example. People were paying premium prices to buy something privately compared to what they could get in public markets. That isn't an illiquidity premium. That's an illiquidity discount, which is not a good idea. The, the you know venture capital, real venture capital, Starting up new businesses gets you access to things you can't get in public markets and is a very sensible thing to have within your portfolio. Still, entry point matters, right? And good VCs know how to negotiate for very good entry points. They don't just pay, you know, whatever double the last valuation is because they can, right? That the you know, And that's, we've seen excesses get into private markets where people were willing to pay the wrong price. And, you know, if your entry point is wrong, it's incredibly hard to make a good return. You have to make really heroic assumptions. And as we know, you know, sort of the, the, we can all pick different examples of things where in the past, you know, the, the valuation of, you know, like, Certainly, the the more recent past, you got valuations for different private businesses where that sort of the only way you could support those valuations was assuming they were going to you know, take over the world. That every single person was going to take an Uber every single day, or the only way any office worked was to be in one of what's his name, Andrew Neumann's, you know, free offices and so on. And those extrapolations were nonsensical. And it's funny that they happened twice, right, in the 2000s, and then they happen again. It's, there's just There doesn't seem to be any memory. And you're trying to get people to remember inflation from the 70s, but they can't even remember the tech bubble from the 2000s. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 one of the things, markets in the investing world is made up of people. 
And most of those people have been doing the job 20, I mean, sorry, not most, there's sort of, most of the people in, in positions of authority have been doing the job 20 years. And if you've been doing the job 20 years, you don't remember the te the tech bubble. And you certainly don't remember inflation. You've got to have been doing it 40 years to remember inflation or be Brazilian. I've always found some of the best portfolio managers for running macro risk I've ever had, a Brazilian or Argentinian, because they, they've lived through bouts of real mega inflation lots of times in their lifetime. And so they really understand the time value of money. With respect to private markets, so man has a, a very large quant systematic effort. Do you think quants will be able to access private markets anytime soon? I think that there are quantitative techniques around data analysis, information gathering, gathering information analysis, where quantitative techniques can really help investments in private markets. Do, do I think that the quants are going to take over private markets? No. But, you know, I, it's it's sort of like... I still think that discretionary fund management makes sense. It's just if you tried to do discretionary fund management using a pen and paper today, you have no chance, right? Everybody uses technology, everybody uses it. You know, and you know, we've spent a lot of time and money getting using our quantitative skills to process as much information as possible for the discretionary fund managers so they can concentrate on the thing they do best, which is, and uniquely, which is to interview people. You know, we're not yet at the place where a computer can do this interview, either asking the questions or answering the questions. You know, maybe one day, but not for some time type of thing. You know, in the same way, you know, the ability to, you know, when you're looking at, when you're looking at venture capital, you are investing in ideas and people, and honestly, the numbers are all a bit BS, yeah. right? They, they show you this upside case, which means that they take over the world and the business is worth a gazillion dollars. Yeah, that's not how anybody invests in and succeeds in VC. What they're doing is investing in the idea and the people to do the execution, and they're putting guardrails to stop them doing stupid things. Yeah, that's not what quants are great at, right? But... If it comes to where should I buy a property and, you know, extracting the data about the, the different prices in different locations, the different quality of schooling, the longevity of leases, so on and so forth, that is stuff that, you know, computers can do incredibly well. So why don't we move on to platforms? Um, in the hedge fund business. They've gotten a lot of press in, in the Financial Times and Wall Street Journal, just to name a couple. Higher fees, liquidity constraints, they're getting bigger and bigger. You know, one, is this kind of a rational outcome? Is it the end of the niche manager? You know, what are the implications of all that to you? Well, I think it's an interesting thing as to what one defines as a platform manager. You, you can very justifiably define man as a platform manager. We have... 100 plus different investment strategies based on one platform of technology. Um, I think that what you're seeing is a couple of things going on. So, yeah, I do sort of think it's 
the the beginnings of maybe the middle innings of the 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 death throes of the niche manager you know we used to talk about 10,000 hedge funds and while i've met a hell of a lot of hedge funds i never quite thought 10,000 was a realistic number but you know i certainly used to meet you know back in my fund of funds days you used to meet 500 new managers a year so you could think there were 5,000 managers and you could think credibly about investing with 2,000 of them and then work out which ones were good. You know, today, the, you know, really a huge proportion of the industry is controlled by the top 200 managers. And I don't think, you know, if you got to 1,000, you're looking at things that are really people's personal account. They're not credible managers now. And that there is more and more concentration in the top 20 managers. Now, again, I could be accusing of talking my book because we're clearly firmly at near the top of that top 20. Um, but I think what you see in... So in every industry in the world, technology is becoming more and more important. And whenever technology becomes important, whether it's a pure tech business or a business where technology is transforming the way it delivers, what you see is natural concentration of success. Because technology creates these natural moats people talk about. And the more money you spend on the technology, the deeper the moat gets, the harder it is for people outside the moat to compete. But, but also, what you see is the moats naturally sort of shrinking so there are less and less people inside the moat because you get people who don't keep up with the technology spend and so the fact that the alpha generating industry is becoming more concentrated and that the people on the inside of the ring the ones who are gaining the assets and gaining the you know, are people with very big technology budgets you know, we talk about how, you know, we're a technology-empowered business. You know, if you look at everything Citadel does, it's a technology-empowered business. You look at any of the the people who are really the ones gaining significant market share, they are big believers in technology. They may or may not be big believers in quant, but they are using technology to enable them to do a lot of things. So, So I think that concentration of alpha generation the concentration of buying power the con concentration of tech spend is part of a natural virtuous circle if you're inside it and vicious circle if you're outside it and i think yeah we're in the mid innings of that and that the large players will continue to take market share and gets harder and harder for a small niche player to generate a consistent source of alpha. The interesting thing is sometimes when I think of technology, I think of prices coming down. But the, the some of the biggest guys are doing longer lockups, passing through more and more cost, taking a bigger chunk of the alpha. Yep. Is that reasonable? So, and that, that gets to an interesting question and something that is certainly philosophical. You might even argue it you know goes somewhere in the direction of ethical um the the you don't have to push your prices up 
you don't have to push your liquidity out. The in doing that, what you are doing is tilting the trade off between the three stakeholders in the industry, the stakeholders being the investors, the end savers, being the businesses, and being the employees. And, um, you know, there, there is a question about how you share the hundred of spoils, the hundred of alpha between those three groups. And, you know, I have a philosophical view. So there is a factual thing, which is that the only people who take actual risk are the end savers, right? The people, you know, it's the, it's they the, lose after yeah, exactly. It's the pension, you know, it's the, it's, it's the pension of the, you know, primary school teacher in Texas or the factory worker in Gronenberg or the whatever, you know, I mean, it's, it's those, those end savers are the ones who put a hundred into their pension in the hope that coming out the other end, it will be more than a hundred and the more than a hundred will be enough that they can turn the heating on more often. Or maybe if you're in Texas, turn the air conditioning on more often rather than not, you know, they need the investment returns in order to be able to have a reasonable standard of living when they when they call on those savings. You know, that's the people whose money it is that we all invest. And I fundamentally believe they ought to get the majority of the returns. The and then it's about splitting it between the company owner and the the employees type of thing. But, you know, there are others who say, look, what you should do is to take the maximum you can possibly take in fees and then decide how you share it between the employee and the company and, you know, the sort of whatever the minimum you need to give away. I understand that. And from a point of view of getting rich, I think that's an optimum strategy as long as you have a relatively short window that you think you're going to do it for. But, it, you know, it is an optimum strategy in some game theory process. I think we all make more than enough money to live extremely well. And I think we have a duty of care to the people whose money we run. And so, you know, I think if we take 20 to 35% of the alpha in fees, we can run a very successful business. We can pay everybody very well. That's good enough. It may not be a personal maximization strategy if the only thing on your personal maximization is bonus this year, but it's it's a pretty good long-term strategy and it's a pretty defendable one. And if you think about more than just yourself, it's a pretty good optimizing strategy. And let's face it, we don't see uh, hedge funds unionizing yet to get more compensation. That might be a few years off. Yeah, well, you might argue that that's what the pass-through strategy is. It's a form of unionization. And I guess that does give them a small advantage if you're passing through technology investment as opposed to charging a management fee. Because for an investor, then you can make the argument that you're paying for something. 
that you need as opposed to extravagance? I don't really think it does. I mean, honestly, it, it, you know, what it does is to de-risk everything for the company, in this case, the owner of the hedge fund, right? And so, you know, the richest people in the finance world now will be people like Ken and Izzy who run big platforms where they take their performance fees with no cost risk at all. And that's a great, you know, well done them. And they're several order, orders of magnitude richer than me. And so, you know, well done them. The, the, but, but I don't think, I don't think it gives them a competitive advantage. You know, it, it's definitely been very good for headhunter fees, but I'm not sure that the, the, the sort of, Savings of the headhunter community is something we should try and optimize. Yeah, I think that's right. So one last thing, um, which you touched on a little bit when you talked about macro guys being good at inflation. So diversification is clearly what everyone wants. You know, it's funny, last year, 50 basis points in bonds, people were waffling, should I keep them, should I not? And now this year, they're after kind of a terror of a year, they, they kind of want to get out of bonds, which I, I think is kind of intriguing because now you get yield. But if you're going to diversify using a place like man, you can use trend, we can use hedge funds. And you often say, you know, man, we are alpha at scale. But if we're really going to manage the assets of, say, the pension fund industry and, and the sovereign wealth funds, how scalable is it in practice? Is it really alpha at scale? At, at some point, does the alpha go away? You know, how, how are you thinking about, let's call it the medium long term, bonds are out, we need diversification, and you need alpha at scale? So I, I'm not sure I buy the bit the bonds are out as a as a sort of generic thing. I think in my belief of the likely investment world that we're going to see for the next phase of time, years, not months, is that buy and hold is out. Right? And that buy and hold on anything is out, but there are moments right now buying credit looks like one of the really interesting things to do. There's some, you know, you can can get some very attractive yields on things that aren't going bust. And, you know, if there's a big recession, you're going to make a lot on the, the, the duration element. And if there isn't a duration, you're going to make a lot on the credit spreads. That feels like a pretty decent risk return right today. But it wasn't six months ago, and it may not be in six months' time. Um, I think that, look, our job is to deliver alpha at scale. You know, last year was $8 billion of alpha. We'll see what the number is this year. Not long to go. It should be a decent number again this year. Um, you know, that makes a difference to our clients. Can it transform everything? Can can we generate enough alpha to offset the lack of global productivity? No, but but that's you know you can only solve the problem you can solve, right? You know, can we generate enough alpha to make a difference for our clients? Yes. Are there a number of things we can keep doing through investing to generate more alpha? That means we can help our clients more or help more clients. Yes, and you know that's a that's a good enough goal in itself. You know, luckily I don't have to manage the global economy. <laughs> That's fair enough. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us, Luke.
Always a pleasure.